Welcome to Talk with the Texan, Money and Life with Troy Eckert. This program is thought-provoking, informative, entertaining, and down to business. We face facts and ideas about how to make, protect, and build your net worth. You'll get over three decades of frontline experiences and real-life examples of what to do and the pitfalls to avoid. Now, here's Troy Eckert. Hey, 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 everyone. This is Troy Eckert. This is the Talk with the Texan Money and Life Show. Thanks for joining me today. Folks, I just want to tell you that uh, I'm enjoying myself quite immensely uh, looking at all the data and all the changes that are going on in the economy today. I know you might say that's uh, kind of a weird statement to start your show, but the fact is, is that um, it is quite intriguing to see all the dynamics that are taking place in today's economy. Remember, the show is money and life. And what I've always thought is that, you know, you can have a great life without money. Um, You can have a lot of money and have a miserable life. It's a balance between the two. It's about trying to understand how one begets the other. And having one part of that equation being absent doesn't mean the other part is not going to be satisfactory. Each and every show that I put out, I try to have something that I believe is going to be of importance, not only to wealthier investors and wealthier listeners, but I hope I have something to offer virtually anybody who's trying to do self-improvement or trying to figure out a better way to live their life, a better way to maybe access more money, which gives them more freedom and financial security. Today, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about raging inflation. Now, I think the one thing that is clear is no one today can tell you how long this inflation is going to last. They cannot tell you how deep the inflation rate will be, how much economic pain will be distributed across all consumers as a result of inflation. So what we have is we have this disease, this economic disease that sits there called inflation. And the thing about this inflation disease that's affecting the economy today is we really haven't seen it in over 40 years. Now, I can put things in perspective for you because I can tell you that the last time I saw inflation, I believe I was a uh, freshman or sophomore in high school. And my parents, who were obviously lower income, very, very low income, both working uh, two full-time jobs, had my three sisters and myself, my uh, 80-year-old grandfather was living with us. And so for a family of seven, uh, things got very quick. Uh, as far as the deterioration of our discretionary income, things got very painful very quick, and it lasted a long, long time. In fact, I would say that because of the inflation scenario back in the 1978, 79, and 80 era, the fact is that it created a much higher level of entrepreneurship by young Americans. When you go to your parents and you say, hey, I've got to have money for lunch or I need money for clothes or I have to have money for gas in my car. And they look at you and tell you, we don't have it. We don't have extra money. We don't have pocket change. We're doing good to put food on the table. It is incredibly difficult just to pay the mortgage and pay the car payment. It is a situation that we've never been in before. And it is crippling us as a family being able to just to survive. So having had that experience as a young teenager, I was very much ingrained in looking at and observing what took place. And I'm able to look at that same identical scenario 
unraveling today in the economy. Remember, the show is Talk with a Texan, Money and Life. Well, I have to use my life experiences and I have to use my background with all the things that I've invested in and all the, the business successes and failures that I've had the last 40 years. But I use that specifically to help reflect back on similar events. Now, I find it interesting. There are just numerous so-called trusted advisors, financial advisors, financial planners. <clears throat> There's all these individuals who now created these. I'm a mastermind. I've got members. I'm charging people fees and, and I'm charging them for my expertise. And I look at the average age and most of them are sub 45 years old. Now, what, why is that interesting? Well, when you talk about money and life, don't you have to have enough experience in life? Didn't you have to have enough experience in both having and not having enough or sufficient amount of money to be able to decide what to do when an economic collapse occurs or a financial setback like a deep recession occurs? Or in this case, a once every, what, 40 years raging inflation occurs? So today, most investors out there of all sizes, of all categories, are starting to ask the question, what am I supposed to do when inflation rises? What is the appropriate response? How do I make decisions about realigning my portfolio? How do I make decisions on which asset class is going to do better or worse? And more importantly, I'm asking somebody who's probably not even old enough to have been actively involved in the uh, time and era of the last great inflation. So I want to talk, on, talk about, and I want to touch on a few things that comes to mind when I think about inflation. First and foremost, um, inflation has a tendency to have uh, like an addiction. It's called um, um, withdrawals, and it's also called uh, lack of uh, admitting that it's happening. Um, when you look at the economists across the country and you look at all these uh, experts that are supposed to be giving advice on financial direction, asset classes, monetary policy, we're finding that so many of them really are finding a hard time even understanding what inflation is doing, why it's here, why it may or may not end anytime soon, and more importantly is how to take a defensive and an offensive posture. Everybody's talking about taking a defensive posture to uh, inflation, but there's also a good offensive position to take when you think about inflation, maybe some of the asset classes that will do well. So for me, it's like having, uh, I hate to say this, like having COVID-19. It was a brand new uh, disease. It had undetermined amount of infection, undetermined amount of mortality. It had undetermined amount of, of growth and, and it had an undetermined amount of additional um, strains. And so as time has gone along, going into the fourth year of the uh, COVID-19 released by China, uh, the fact is now we're saying, well, what, what comes next? What, what do we look back at and see from 2020 to now? And if we have another occurrence of another virus, how would that be handled today differently than the way the one that was uh, brought about in 2020? Well, the same thing is now being reviewed. We're looking back at, at Volcker's policies back in the late 1980-81 era. We're looking at Jimmy Carter um, did absolutely nothing to benefit the country or the economy because he simply didn't know what to do and took very little, if any, action to prevent, slow down, or even um, cease the inflation rate that was taking place at, at record paces back in the 19, late 1970s, 1980s. 
Ronald Reagan came in and essentially between the Fed and Ronald Reagan's policy, it was all about we've got to get the consumers to stop buying as many products as they want, even at high interest rates, because we still don't have the supply and the demand is causing competition for products, services and goods, which is creating a continuation of inflation. So they basically choked off the economy. They said, okay, we're going to raise interest rates so high. It's going to be so painful. You will not go buy a car because you're not going to pay 20% interest rate. You're not going to buy a new house at 16, 18, 19% mortgage rates. You're not going to go buy meat that was running 89 cents a pound back in the 1970s and pay three or $4 a pound. You just can't do it. You might buy 25% of the meat that you bought the previous six months because that's all you can afford. And the unemployment was very high because the one thing that uh, businesses do right off the bat when the economy sinks, either in recession or inflation, is they say, how do I cut cost? Where do I cut cost? And what does that look like when it comes to making adjustments within my business? Well, the first thing any business owner is going to do is they're going to start looking across the board and say, my most expensive item every month, the most expensive thing that I have to account for is labor. So I'm going to take a look at my labor and I'm going to see based on where I'm at, is there any labor that I find that is either not a have to have, maybe it's more expensive than it should be, maybe there's alternatives to that labor, and so they're going to make labor cuts. So in an inflationary trend, you're going to see labor cuts. Well, what does labor cuts do? It creates unemployment, puts more financial strain on the social services, and what it does, it means more people out there not spending money, not going to the movies, not buying food, not buying retail supplies, because now they're trying to figure out how to job, how they can survive going forward. The other thing that it does with inflation is it creates um, a very clear list of what is or is not a staple good. You know, do you need the, uh, the dishwashing soap that's a uh, brand name? Absolutely not. I just need something that bubbles up and cleans my dishes. So you, people go to the cheapest, least expensive source of dishwashing soap. Do you go to the dentist every six months and get your teeth cleaned? You say, you know what? My teeth are in pretty good shape. I'm going to hold off and get my teeth cleaned. I'll do it in six months because you know what? I'm not paying that copay. I'm not paying that extra hundred dollars. Do you find yourself going out and buying those new tires? If you look at your tires and say, you know, I can get another 10 or 15,000 miles on these tires. I think I'm going to hold off. And so you have this, this labor shortage as a result of inflation because employers are cutting back. And now you have this consumer shortage of appetite because quite frankly, they don't want to um, spend any money because they don't know when their next paycheck's coming. They don't know where the next um, possible increase in inflation is coming from. There are certain inflationary items today that are coming about that there's nothing you can do. I'm talking like electricity, utilities, uh, gasoline, diesel. Um, there are certain aspects of our life that runs off fossil fuel and with fossil fuel moving well over $100 a barrel and natural gas poised to be over $10 per thousand cubic feet. today. One of the underpinnings of this inflationary trend is access to inexpensive energy. And in, in that I've spent my entire career in the oil and gas industry, I can tell you there is no relief in sight, not in the next two to five years. Energy is going to continue to be the underpinning of rising inflation and could quite possibly be what drives us to new inflation figures we haven't seen in over 40 years and I mean, even beating the 19, late 70s and 80s records of what interest rates do and where they go. Now, one thing that's a little different today that I didn't 
see or wasn't aware of, or at least when I read back through the data, it was not really um, uh, present at the time of the big crash in 1978 to 1982 when the inflation rate just went through the roof. And that is there wasn't as much distribution of wealth. So today in this country, we're dealing with about 21 million millionaires. Let's define a millionaire. Okay, a millionaire is somebody who has a million dollars of assets above what they owe or debt. If I were to take you and sell everything you own, your life insurance, your furniture, your cars, your watches, your bank account, your stocks, if I were to sell everything you have, pay off all your debts, do you end up with a million dollars in value or higher? If you do, you're considered a millionaire in this country. Based on the latest statistics out there, there's 21 million millionaires. And I can tell you about seven, eight years ago, there was only 16 million millionaires. Now there is about a 33% increase in the number of millionaires. Wow, what happened in the last um, six, seven, eight years that created so many new millionaires? Well, for one, we had very inexpensive energy costs. So energy costs have been pretty well suppressed since about 2015. Um, Cheap energy was part of the President Trump uh, mantra. He believed that keeping drilling costs low, encouraging more drilling, giving big tax write-offs, getting the oil companies to have all the uh, regulations lifted from the prior Obama administration, pushing and, and, and really giving financial direction toward the economy to look for cheap and, and inexpensive energy was his secret sauce to why the economy boomed like it did in his presidency. Okay, so what we have is we have a brand new set of millionaires, five or six million new millionaires created in the last seven or eight years because the economy boomed. Stocks were 20, 30% return per year. Real estate was 15 to 30% return a year or more. And we had more and more younger uh, individuals that became classified as millionaires because of e-commerce, because of all the uh, the new online uh, uh, internet sites, because of the Facebooks, the Googles, the Ubers, the all these different brand new Silicon Valley companies that started up have just made hundreds of thousands of millionaires. That's a great thing. It's, it's why America is such a great country. The problem is when you have only had good times for the last 13 years and you've never experienced a correction, you've never experienced a downturn, it's going to be real interesting to see how many of these 21 million millionaires are no longer millionaires. So the data I saw recently was there's about $3 trillion in net worth that has disappeared between the stock market and cryptocurrency. $3 trillion has disappeared. Okay, it's getting worse because I believe the stock market will continue to go down. I believe crypto is hanging on a thread's edge as far as whether it goes up or down. I think uh, lately it's kind of balanced out around $20,000 a coin for Bitcoin and uh, various other coins underneath that cryptocurrency market. Um, I believe there's another storm that has been brewing and it's upon us, and that's the real estate market. There's going to be all kinds of valuation resets. There's going to be all kinds of new debt that has to be taken on at much higher interest rates. And you're going to see a substantial number of the real estate portfolios out there between residential real estate, commercial real estate, multifamily, self-storage. They're all going to be faced with pushback from their customers or consumers. They're going to find themselves in a position where there's not as many buyers who can go out and borrow money at 6 7 8% interest and higher. You're going to find that any buyer that's out there is going to uh, reduce the value of your property by giving you a higher cap rate instead of a four and a quarter. It might be a five, a six cap rate because why? My money has to earn a better rate of return when I have inflation pushing close to double digits. 
Not only that, but I'm taking on a much higher risk because now banks are lending money at much higher interest rates, which means the cost of my capital is higher. So I can't be buying your apartment at a four cap rate. I can't be buying your self-storage at a four and a quarter cap rate. I need more like six, seven, eight caps because that's what I have to earn on my money. Otherwise, why would I do it? Why would I take on the risk? So as a collective activity, what's going on, we're looking at millionaires in this country and we're saying, what's happening to the top 1%? Now, for those listeners who are not a millionaire, you don't have a million dollars in assets, you're saying, you know, Troy, you always focus on millionaires. You always focus on the rich. Well, I got news for you. Who do you think buys the most expensive cars, the biggest houses, the biggest boats, takes the most trips, starts the newest businesses, opens up the new plant, builds the new building? It's not the the 96% who have jobs and are classified as W-2 employees. When the wealthy don't feel wealthy and when the more affluent don't feel affluent, they have a tendency to curl back their, their spending. They have a tendency to retract their tentacles from startups and new businesses and new ideas. They have a tendency to say... Okay, I got from A to Z. I backtracked from Z back down to R. I want to reset everything I'm doing to find out if I'm really safe at R or should I be looking at the fact I might have further deterioration. As the saying goes, maybe I should keep some powder dry in case there is some good opportunities to come forward in the next two to three years, such as foreclosed homes, foreclosed businesses, foreclosed commercial buildings, and really low markets, values on the stock exchange, et cetera. Because now if I can hold back some capital and I have some dry powder, I might get some really, really good deals in two to three years. So what you end up with is this lull in the market. Well, let's face it. Here's where we're at. We have inflation. Um, We have an administration who has clueless what to do with inflation. In fact, it is my personal opinion. They want and they need and they're aiding and abetting a continual rise in inflation. When you have higher inflation, it is being pushed by energy, but as inflation goes up higher, it actually will be dragging energy prices higher as well as being pushed by energy prices. How does that happen? Well, we've already seen because of a imbalance between supply and demand, there's more demand for fossil fuels, oil and gas and diesel than there is supply. It's caused oil and gas prices to rise back in March of this year up to $129 a barrel. We have a war going on overseas between Russia and Ukraine, and that's probably going to spill over the borders. We have disruptions from the Suez Canal backlog and the jam that took about two or three weeks to get opened up. We have all kinds of supply issues from the fact we haven't been drilling globally the last five or six years. So you've got this imbalance that's taking place. When you have this energy imbalance, It then spills over to virtually every other sector in the economy. And so today, the administration uh, currently is saying, if we have higher oil and gas prices, it's my personal belief, they wanted to see oil run back up to $120 a barrel or higher. They wanted this for the main reason as follows. When you strip out the subsidies for solar energy and wind energy, you strip out the government subsidies, which they've been doing for over 20 years, And you let each one of these energy sources stand as an equal value of energy, meaning the quantity of energy, and you calculate that for the cost of that energy unit. Oil has to be at about $125 a barrel for an energy unit from either wind or solar to be equal to it. So for the last 20 years, this whole subsidizing of energy and the form of wind and tax credits for solar, et cetera, has all been artificial. 
And now that the tax credits and the government stimulus package as far as trying to subsidize those two sectors, such as wind and solar, now it's got to be looking at a future of can it stand on its own? Can it be a truly viable energy source relative to other sources that the consumer wants to choose from? And the answer is no. So it's my belief that they have, they as the left side, liberal side of the administration, which is pretty much 100%, they have decided years ago, we're going to do everything we can to over-regulate oil and gas. We're going to go after tax credits, tax advantages that create opportunities for wealthier investors to invest in oil and gas because we need more production. They're going to limit the, eliminate that. They're going to put all types of media information out which would, as any kind of a risk-reward type of evaluation, would say, maybe we don't want to be spending more money or entering the oil and gas sector because it looks like this administration is hell-bent on doing everything they can to put in regulations that discourage any type of future capital investments in the oil and gas space. So here we are with an administration that says we got to have oil or $125 barrel, except one thing else happened. As the oil companies started seeing and measuring supply chain disruption um, and started looking at the same thing most industries have seen since COVID, lack of labor, lack of supply, lack of equipment, lack of material, lack of raw goods, the cost of drilling, expiration, production, and pipelines has risen by 25 to 45% as well. So now that $125 per barrel equivalency for wind and solar is probably close to $150 or more at this time and rising. So it's kind of like chasing your tail. You're not going to catch it if you do. It's not going to feel good when you bite it. So we're chasing our tail trying to figure out how we can possibly drill enough wells to satisfy the demand, how the industry can possibly keep cost and control uh, to keep drilling costs lower so we're encouraged financially to drill more wells because we have rising costs. And at the same time, you have an administration who realizes inflation is rampant, it's raging inflation. The, the, the value and the cost of oil and gas, fossil fuels for everything that's used in the economy is moving higher, which is now instead of being uh, oil and gas being drugged by the stimulus inflation, now it's pushing inflation. And guess what? It's going to continue to get worse. So when I think about um, you as a listener, whether you're a wealthy investor or you're not, you got to start asking yourself, what, what can you do? Well, there's only really two ways to fight inflation, Right. There's either top-down strategy or bottom-up. What does that mean? Top-down, think about it. It's like erosion. If I've got a budget for my business or I've got a budget for my family, I've got all the things that I spend my money on every month. If you sit down and just be painstakingly honest with yourself, and you go through, look, I buy a cup of coffee every morning for $3 at a local coffee shop on the way to work. I buy I food out four days a week because I don't want to cook and I got my kids coming home or in soccer. Or I like to go out on Friday nights and I want to go to the movies and I want to go grab some beer with my wife. And whatever your habits are, if you truly listed them down, you probably could shed 15 to 20 percent of your monthly outflow of cash by simply looking at where you spend money. Now, I'm going to be candid with everyone. <clears throat> I experienced this back in 2008 and 9. 2008, when the, the big housing bubble crash occurred, it about wiped me out. And what I realized in less than 120 days, I went from thinking I was pretty close to retiring to pretty close to being out of business because everything was happening so quickly and one falling domino pushed the other. So the first thing you do is say, all right, I've got two ways of managing this crisis. Now, the crisis in 2008 wasn't inflation, 
the crisis was capital. It was a failure of the capital markets as a result of the housing crash. You couldn't get your hands on money. Banks weren't lending. Banks were calling notes in and there was no buyers. There was no solution. So if you were ill-prepared with liquidity to weather the storm, which I was not, and you find yourself with multiple asset classes, real estate, stocks, oil and gas, natural resources, all get clobbering at the same time. Even if you were diversified, if you didn't have liquidity and cash on hand, you couldn't weather the storm very good. Okay. It's kind of in my, in my lifetime, there was a one-time event where everything collapsed at the same time and it was pretty catastrophic, right? So as I looked at a balance sheet and I looked at what I was going to do, I had, I had a decision. I either had top down, I have to cut costs, or I got to look at bottom up. How do I grow my business? Well, when everybody else is standing around in the business world trying to determine how bad it is and how much worse it's going to get, stimulating new business, if you didn't have a particular niche market that correlated with what was happening in 2008, you weren't going to get new business. So you were left with really one choice. One choice was top down. I got to cut costs immediately. So the same thing is happening today, but for a different reason. Now we're in this crisis where we have um, capital markets are being constrained. Bankers are not lending money because they don't want to lend money out on long-term notes today, knowing that inflation is going higher. We have um, all types all types of readjustments on balance sheets where you thought you had a good balance sheet four months ago. And you said, hey, I've got this many assets. I've got this much cash. Here's my business. Many entrepreneurs are finding that their business is down 10 or 20% and continue to decrease. So there goes your income. Many are finding they're tapping into their savings or their lines of credit because they're trying to keep their business moving and trying to maintain that service or that uh, delivery of product and goods and services to their customers, right? And I think the other thing is, is that the banks themselves are saying, we're, we know we have a whole lot of loans on our balance sheet that are not going to make it. They're, they're going to default. So we better start hoarding some cash back for these non-performing loans. Covenants have changed. It's a whole new day. So in less than 120 days, everybody's gone from free, cheap access to cheap capital to now the answer is no, not yet. Higher, higher equity versus debt. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm doing some stuff in my bank right now. And in some cases, they want 40%, 50% down. And they're doing shorter notes because they don't want to be locked into a low interest rate when they know that interest rates most likely over the next five years are going to be substantially higher than they are today. So it's a whole new paradigm. It's a whole new shift going on inside the financial world. And so from you, me, and everyone, that bottom up, growing your business just got super, super tough. Okay. So what's that leave everybody with? Well, now it's cannibalism. Now it's, now it's the uh, top-down approach, which is how do I look at my business or my family and decide what do I get rid of? So I'm just going to be candid with everybody. Uh, nine out of 10 of you won't do it. I had a whole bunch of buddies that were losing businesses, going broke, having trouble, business constrained. We kind of had this non-organized uh, group. We'd call each other. How's it going? What'd you tell your banker? Have you got any advice? Hey, I got a line of credit due. We did a lot of sharing about what each one of us were doing in our own situations just by happenstance. It wasn't like we sat down and had this big business plan. We sat down and said, hey, man, how you doing? Oh, man, my customers did this. I got two customers just stiffed me on a note and I got a bank note due. I don't have cash. These conversations were pretty intense. But they were very, very helpful because we were able to share what was going across a broad market in different industries. And that kind of kept us all with the idea that we had solutions, we had ideas, we were working together to figure out how we could best manage our business. So it's great. But today, you've got a whole lot going on. Now, everybody is focused on the internet. Now, everybody's focused on, you know, most of us don't have best friends anymore. We, we go to Google and Google's our best friend or social media. So a lot less collaboration I see in today's entrepreneur world than there was back, let's say, 15 years ago. But when you look at your only choice today, which is going to be top down, 
unless you're in that very, very unique uh, product or services that actually does well under high inflationary times, you're going to find yourself absolutely faced with only one or two solutions, which is that top down. So let's talk about it. So I'm going to, as I said, I was going to be, be candid. What I would do when everything hit the fan back in 08, I sat down with a notebook and I put all my employees on a list and I labeled them one, two, or three. Three were any individual employee that I had employed at the time that I knew I could survive with the business if they were not there. It wasn't that they were a luxury. It was that they were someone that, were, that was in a position, either it was duplicated position, it was overdone, redundancy. Um, maybe it was a position that was added in good times and not necessary in slow times. Maybe it was just simply that the existing staff could absorb, you know, four people could absorb one person's job, picking up an extra 20%. And so you make your choices. I made my choices on my employees, you know, one, two, three. Three was first to be cut when I had to cut. Two was the second round. And, and the number one group was once I couldn't cut, or I wouldn't have a functional business. And so I then started looking at the cost of labor. I looked at the cost of HR. I looked at the cost of all the retention value underneath our benefits programs. And I started weighing what those benefits were, not just to the company relative to uh, our paying for those costs, paying for those uh, benefits. It was also the importance to the employees because you can keep, you know, your best, you know, eight or nine or 10 employees in a small company like mine. But what if you get rid of the benefits that makes them say, you know what, this has been fun, but I've got to look for another job because now, even though I'm working for you, I now feel like I'm getting less than I need to take care of my family. So now they're going to go out looking. So I've, I've seen recently here in the last five months, I ran an ad on LinkedIn and I think I had three responses. It was fun. Like nobody wanted to respond. Everybody's eating Cheetos on the couch, right? Ran an ad about two weeks ago. And I, I want to say I'm getting between five and 10 a day. Now, here's the interesting part. I'm getting five or 10 a day for a job that is pretty well defined what they're going to do. And they're coming back with don't match any. The resume submitted matches zero of the characteristics or the requirements for the job that I posted. And it's again and again and again and again. So for me, most of them I don't waste my time on, don't want to talk to them because they don't qualify. They don't have what I need. Sometimes I'll call because maybe they have a one of the three, you know, they have all three, but they're low numbers. Regardless, I like to talk to them, go, can I ask you a question? Why did you uh, apply for this job? I'm going to give you a real life example. And this has to do with the, uh, the top down, by the way. Um, call the guy on the phone. He returns my call. And I said, so it looks like on your resume, you used to be a peace officer. You work for a family real estate business. Why are you interviewing with my company? Why don't you just keep working for your dad's real estate company? Why don't you just go back and, and do what you were doing? Oh, no, I want a brand new career. I said, well, great. So what do you know about my business? No answer. What, well, have you gone online? Have you looked at what we do? Uh, to be honest, my internet's been down, really. So you couldn't use the internet on the phone you're dialing me right now, right? So what happens is, is that you have this huge increase in the amount of people looking for jobs. They just want a place. They just want to park their butt in a job and hope they get a paycheck because their own business, their own line, their own industry has collapsed or is collapsing. And they're seeing the writing on the door, which is, I am probably going to either get a big pay reduction, no bonuses, cutting, uh, cutting my health benefits or my, my overall HR benefits, or I'm going to be fired. So many of them are out preemptively looking for a safe place to land. The problem is they're not really looking for a safe place for the employer. They're looking for a safe place for themselves. So part of the top down is going to be not just employers, not just businesses trying to cut staff, but you're going to see a lot of employees who are going to be forced out because they can't make 
They can't get enough hours at the restaurant. They can't get enough tips because there's nobody coming in to buy, you know, 45% more expensive tacos. So people are going to start making shifts as a result of the economy and employers and those that have people they're paying W-2 income, either they're going to start losing those employees because they're going to have to find other jobs or you're going to have to cut them because you can't afford to keep everybody as your own business slows down. Now, in my case, um, I made my cuts as I had to. I renegotiated my bank loans and I said, look, this is what I'm going to be able to do and what I'm not going to be able to do. And I'm going to tell every one of you this. Tell your banker to stick it in their backside. Okay, I'm being very candid with you. That banker lent you money based on a risk profile and based on your covenants. That banker has a choice to make, either work with you or foreclosing your loan or, or, or take your assets. Uh, the reality is they don't want to do either. They don't want your assets. They don't want to take over your business. They want you to convince them that you're going to be able to make your payments. You're going to do it on a timely basis. You're going to uh, correspond with them, communicate with them, so they can at least know that, that the loan they gave you is as safe as any other loan, and you're doing all you can do to make sure you make that payment. But the thing about it is, is that, as in my case, when you have banks that are in trouble, they don't have any choice anymore. Now you have the FDIC and the the regulators coming in, and they're telling the bank officers, this is what you will or will not do. So if you currently have a job, get to work early, stay late. If you have employees, be very open on communication with them. Let them know what you're doing, how you're planning your business, and what you're planning on do to make it through the uh, recession that we're obviously in. The more you communicate, and I don't say you have to get down to the nitty gritty, but the more you communicate, the more you're convincing your employees, this is a place that's going to survive. We're going to do well. It may not be robust as it has in the past, but I have a plan. I have a commitment. And as long as each one of you give me the same commitment, we will make it through this. You should also make sure that You're portraying your business in a good light by saying we recognize these particular elements of our business are the most important to our customer. We're going to focus on those. These other elements of our business, which are not as critical to the customer, we may have to cut back on that in order to save personnel, time, and money. In other words, we've got a a ship. It's got a hole in it called inflation. We've got to decide which hole we need to patch, how many of us need to row the oars to get to shore, how many of us need to be bailing water. That's part of your decision as, a, as an owner or manager or, or officer of the company. As an employee, your job's simple. Hey, captain of the ship, what can I do? How do I need to maintain my job? You want to be that shining star in the company where they say, you're automatically in category one. We're not getting rid of Johnny until there's nothing left to do except me and Johnny leave, shut the door as we walk out. So you want to make yourself very, very valuable. Uh, you don't want to do uh, like the guy that called me and say, to be honest with you, I have no idea. I haven't looked it up. I have no clue what you're talking about. I'm so sorry. I don't have internet. And then he texts back about five hours later. Okay, I've done all my research. Really want to join your company. He doesn't want to join a company. He's looking for a job. And so as an employer, for me, I'm just simply looking at it saying, if I've got to look at top down, cutting costs and inflation, I'm going to be looking at my own employees and saying, which employee has demonstrated that they are truly here as a long-term employee? I'm going to look at cutting things that I think are, are uh, easy to do without having a dramatic effect on my employees. I'm going to have real upper management decision when it comes to things like HR benefits and, and things that are expensive and, and really deteriorate your cash flow and have to make decisions on what's really important for the business or not. Now, I'll just tell everybody, my business is doing absolutely fantastic. I'm not having any of these issues today. I'm in the oil and gas mineral rights. I do oil and gas. I have pipelines. And so for me, everything is going incredibly well. So this this whole talk today, money and life, is not about what I'm going through, but I've already been talking to several of my partners and investors and their businesses are being 
uh, hammered in several different, several different ways. And as a result, I am sharing with them a lot of my experiences to say, here's what I would do. Here's what I wouldn't do. Maybe you should think about this. Have you thought about doing X? When you think about being a millionaire and you think about the position you have in the country, 21 million millionaires in the country today, that's who's leading your country. You basically have 21 million people who have enough financial assets. They make the investments, they buy the cars, they eat out at restaurants, they do the traveling, they're buying the retail goods, they're buying, they're the ones paying the landscapers instead of mowing their own grass. This 21 million people are the ones who have all the wealth in this country. Now, what happens when you have a $3 trillion loss like crypto in the stock market in the last four months? You might not have 21 million millionaires anymore. You might be down to 17 million millionaires. Somebody lost $3 trillion. I mean, I know Elon Musk lost a lot, but that doesn't mean he's the only one. I also know that many of them don't even know where they're at in their portfolio or their net worth because they bought a bunch of crypto. It's down. They're praying to God it comes back. They're in a bunch of real estate partnerships. They don't know whether they're going to sell, get out with their money, have a note due, or have to refinance a much higher interest rate. There goes their cash flow. There is a lot of people that are very highly levered and very much exposed out there in the market right now who really couldn't tell you if they're still a millionaire or not. They like to think they are. They drive a fancy car. They live in a condo and, they, and they're fairly young and they're like, hey, life is good. And uh, well, how much money do you have? Well, I don't know. I mean, it'll come back. I'm going to be okay. Really? Well, that may be true and maybe not. But the point is, is that out of the 21 million millionaires, how many really are still around and how many will still make it through and how many can really give us any kind of a... Uh, a help in the economy because they're trying to battle their own battles like I did in 2008, where you're trying to fight banks and loans and partners and the whole nine yards. Um, I think the way I define the economy as it is today, raging inflation, administration who wants it to be there. Don't expect it to come down in the next 24 to 36 months. The administration today has 30 months left under this president. He has no intention on doing anything. His handlers have no intention on doing anything to suppress inflation. In fact, we're talking about adding more taxes onto the wealthy in the United States. That absolutely is zero uh, assistance in lowering inflation. In fact, it has no correlation to it at all. It does help create more money for the national treasury. It sure doesn't help inflation. In fact, it probably makes it worse because guess what? I'm going to simply fire more people. I'm going to simply buy less assets. I'm going to buy less real estate. I'm going to do less. You're, you're punishing the very source of the economy that is going to probably help you get out of this inflation by helping produce more product, lowering costs, expanding plants, and doing the things that are necessary to maybe push back on the supply chain derailment and push back on the supply chain shortage, which is in fact driving inflation, right? So you, you end up with this um, current administration that has a policy and has a directive that is more in line with uh, more of the same. And more of the same just means much higher inflation. Much higher inflation means you're going to be faced with some decisions with your household or with your business. Um, do I cut? Can I afford to push forward? Do I, um, do I, what do I do in my own home? You know, what I did back in, in uh, 2008, I simply, I, I had two different budgets. I had a budget for the business, a budget for the house. And at the house, I said, look, I don't need this. I don't need that. I don't need this cable. I don't need to have that long guy. I, I mean, you make some decisions. You go, you know what? At the end of the day, I really didn't need it all. It was just extra stuff I was spending money on. I can remember shaving off several thousand dollars a month worth of items and things that I absolutely didn't need. I didn't go buy that $3 cup of coffee in the morning at the coffee shop. I'd simply put a pot of coffee on in the morning, grab myself a great big old cup of coffee, cost me maybe about a dollar for the entire pot, and I'd rock and roll for the day. 
I figured it up. I mean, I'm a numbers guy. So, okay, $3 a day times five days a week times 52 weeks of the year. I'm saving myself 450 bucks and on and on and on. You're going to see a lot more of that in the economy now. You're going to see people really starting to measure what they want. Is it worth the money? Can they wait? Should they wait? And at what price will they continue to push forward? And which price will they say no thank you? So let's talk, let's move to strictly kind of my favorite category, which is millionaires, right? I mean, that's that's what I've worked with is millionaires for the last uh, 37 years. Um, I've really gotten good at knowing how they think and what they do. And here's what I have a tendency to see these millionaires doing today in inflationary times. They are really investing in a defensive position. They're really saying to themselves, do I have a better chance of my stock portfolio going up or down? And they're measuring that based on the volume of stocks being traded. And they measure it based on the rate of inflation. They're measuring it based on the administration's lack of, of uh, action in order to try to curtail inflation, looking at the Fed funds rates. So they're saying, defensively, I'm going to pull money out of the stock market because I have a much higher chance, 75 to 90% chance, stocks are going to go down versus up. And even if they don't go up dramatically, it's a long haul to keep my money in that equity position with a chance of it falling and very little chance of it rising. So from that standpoint, their defensive position is to withdraw cash out of the stock market and put it in another asset class. Offensively, you're finding that investors are starting to look around at things like oil and gas mineral rights. They're looking at natural resources. They're looking at lithium and, and precious metals and, and uh, all kinds of different natural resources around the world. And they're saying, if I can buy and own those resources today, um, they will be worth more value when this economy levels off or inflation starts to pull back. But they're also worried about which asset class will actually generate some value or some cash flow because your money is losing every year. The value of your money is being eaten away by the rate of inflation. If inflation's 10%, your cash, your liquid cash capital is worth 10% less this coming year. Inflation is an automatic erosion of wealth and it's an automatic tax, taxing your money because what it does, you have less money to spend at the end of the year. So investors are not really able to just sit back and say, well, I just won't do anything. I'll just go sit in cash. Wrong. You're going to lose as much as you have as inflation. Well, maybe I'll go buy some rent houses. Nope, because either I'm paying cash or I got to get leverage, cost of debt's higher. And by the way, all the people who rent your homes and, and uh, rent your residential, rent your duplexes and triplexes and your multifamily, they're all going to be struggling. Most of them are going to be struggling. So now it's just going to be a matter of how far they drop down the ladder of quality. They drop from an A plus to an A uh, multifamily. They go from an A to A minus, A minus to a B, B to a C. So really uh, investing in real estate right now has to be really well thought out because the market truly hasn't corrected yet. It's correcting now. We're watching it unfold but you still see ridiculous prices and really ridiculous expectations. So I think for us, whether you're a, a million dollar net worth individual or not, right now you should, I mean, get a notepad out. You should write down every bill you have and start saying, what absolutely do I have to have? What do I absolutely have to have? Plus, I think I really need. And then you have have, need, and luxury. The luxury items are the first things you need to cut. Get rid of all of it because then you can pay off credit cards fast, you pay off debt fast, you put uh, advanced payments on your house fast, you maybe make an extra car payment ahead of time. In other words, you can actually do some really good by taking the money you save from luxuries. And this goes to businesses and personal. You know, if you have a water cooler, you go, you know what, guys, we're drinking out of the sink. We don't need a water cooler. Well, that sounds stupid. That's only 250 bucks a month. 
250 bucks a month times 50 different things like that in your office means you got 10 or $15,000 a month that you're wasting. Wouldn't that be better to put $15,000 in a operating savings account that allows you to build up $180,000 at the end of the year that maybe gives you four or five months worth of sustainability if for some reason your cash flow is cut off? I don't know. I'm not in your boat. I'm not in your shoes. But what I do know is what I do know is from what I went through, uh, what I have at my company right now is we have at least 12 months worth of cash flow sitting in the account. We have a buildup of cash. Our goal is to be two to three years of liquidity sitting in the account to make sure that if everything goes to hell in a handbasket, we're not really going to care because we have taken the diligence to make sure we run a lean ship and have that capital available. Now, you can thank 2018 housing crisis for that because, quite frankly, that's what catapulted me to taking action, not procrastinating and delaying. I'm going to wrap it up by giving you a little example of the three types of millionaires that I see. And this is more about their personality and style, but it also has to do with maybe you giving some thought to which one you are. Um, I see uh, millionaires because I've done business with probably thousands and thousands of millionaires my whole career. And I'm not talking like just meet them one time. I'm talking like day in, day out, conversation, investment, some of them I've known 20, 30 years. So this is just my own observation. But I really think you have kind of three different types of um, millionaires out there. And it has a lot to do with who is or who is not going to look at the current inflationary economy and take action. So the first one is the, the A-type millionaire is the, is the person who just doesn't keep score. If you sat down and said, you know, what's your net worth? Uh, honestly, I don't know. Well, you're worth $5 million or more? Mm, I don't know, to be honest with you. $2 million or less? Uh, sounds right. I don't have a clue. I don't know. The ones who don't keep score, they're constantly accumulating wealth because they enjoy the process. It's not the score. It's not the net worth. It's not the balance sheet. It's not the gloat. It's not the membership to the club. They do it because they enjoy the process of taking a dollar, turning it into two. They enjoy buying a business and doubling its size. They enjoy watching a stock they uh, methodically chose go up, double, triple, quadruple the value because they pick the outlier that nobody else was looking at and they pick the winning horse. They, they, they do it because of the process. It's about the journey and the experience and the memories and the mental game. These individuals that are not keeping score, it's really from the time they started making money to the time they stopped investing, it is about all the wins, the losses, the fun, the people they met, the partners they become partners with. It's the different categories and asset class they were involved in, the ups, the downs, the inflations, the recessions. It's really about the experience. I generally find these individuals that don't keep score, I generally find it to be very quiet and laid back. Couldn't tell if they had a dollar in their pocket. Couldn't tell if they were worth 50 million or 5 million or 500 million. Uh, they're incredibly grateful whenever you work for them or with them. They're just always, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're awesome. Uh, they're very, very patient. Hey, the project was supposed to develop in 12 months. Looks like we got sidetracked. Look like it's going to take more like 18. That's fine. We're we still on track. Good. Okay. We'll check. Call me next month. So, this type, um, this A type millionaire is really somebody who's not really and having anxiety attacks about the money they've already invested. They're more inclined to say, I've, I've invested in you as much as the asset. I've invested in the process as much as the end result. I'm comfortable with what's going on. So therefore, I'm going to be patient. Now, this is a good thing. And it's also a bad thing because somebody who's extremely patient, like a type A mineral uh, millionaire, like I just described, is also the one that says, ah, the market's going to come back. It'll come back in four years. I don't, I don't need to sell my stocks. I'll just write it down and it'll come back and I'll be okay. Well, that, that lack of proactivity also can be a factor in maybe why they exponentially don't grow their portfolio because maybe they should have sold it even though there was a slight loss because the additional loss forthcoming in the, in the next few months 
might be another 15 or 20%. They could have saved that downward uh, trend in the asset value by getting out and then redeploying the capital in 12 or 14 or 18 months down the road. Um, they really like to invest to grow slow. They're not about trying to hit the home run. They'll take singles all day long. Just hit the ball down the fairway, hit the ball down the fairway, hit the ball down the fairway. Uh, it's very unemotional. It's all about just trying to make a directive, trying to set a goal and going for it, right? Now, let's talk about the second type of millionaire, in my opinion. The second type of millionaire, the B type, um, he knows the score, she knows the score, but doesn't tell him. In other words, they know exactly what their net worth is. They know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly where their cash is. They know at all times within a very small margin of, of, of uh, incorrectness or not being correct, inaccurate. Um, they know what the score is. They just don't have to tell everybody. They don't have to drive the Ferrari. They drive a decent car, nice car, live in a nice house, good house, probably better than most of their friends. Um, they take nice trips, not over-the-top trips. They, they absolutely know what their net worth is, and they know where the money's allocated, and they know what they've got at risk but you'd never know it because they don't flaunt it. So these individuals I find to be very, very selective in what they invest in. They're very goal-oriented. I'm, I'm investing in X because I'm expecting it to be an inflation hedge. I'm expecting it to be a five-year maturity stage. I'm expecting it to cash flow in 18 months. I'm expecting the cash flow to generate this percentage. So they're very specific what they do. They're very selective in what they do. Um, they have a good life but they're not out trying to impress everybody else. You'll pull up to their house and go, nice house. I have no idea the guy's worth $10 million. Pull up to the nice house. I had no idea she had $20 million net worth because they're not trying to impress you as much as they're trying to make sure that in their mind, they're successfully building a net worth. They're increasing that bucket. They're seeing that balance sheet grow, but they're not doing it in such a way that it's flamboyant or that it's trying to be a, um, a flash and dash for anybody. Um, they're very interactive. I find these type of investors interactive, but not demanding. They want to know, they ask a lot of questions. What's going on? Why, 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 where, when, who? Great questions, but they're not demanding. They're not, they're not jerks about it. So that's, that's a nice attribute of these types of investors. Um, to be candid with you, I think these investors are probably my favorite investors because they're really relationship driven. And what I mean by that is that whenever they make the investments in each asset, stocks, bonds, financial advisor, oil and gas, whatever they're doing, they want to know who's involved, who's making the decisions, why. They want to know the, the intricacies of the, of, the, of the asset class, but they also are very, very relationship driven. And the relationship is probably more important than the asset class itself. They love to win. They absorb their losses very well. Hey, the well was drilled dry. All right. It sucks. Don't like it. What's coming up next? Stock market is down 20%. Great. Is there anything I should be buying at this time? They're not whimpering and whining and they're not recoiling from investments that have underperformed or have uh, been affected dramatically by the market. In fact, they're more interested in seeing uh, how they can modify their risk profile, how they can take cash they have to take advantage of distressed assets and rebuild that portfolio while the chaos is still going on. Then we have the um, type C Eckerd millionaire, which is the one who only cares about the score. And I can tell you that um, I don't have any of these people because I don't like working for them. Uh, these individuals, they're like cannibals. Uh, nothing matters more to them than, than being able to brag about the new house, the new car, the new jet, uh, how their net worth has gone up by 2% the last 36 hours, how they picked the winning stock. They're seriously flash and dash. Uh, they want to wear the big watches, the fancy clothes, and they want everybody when you walk in the room to go, oh, that guy must make a lot of money. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But that individual that is all about the score 
is, um, in my view, they have two mouths and one ear. They don't listen to what you tell them. They don't want to learn about the asset class. They absolutely don't want to be an expert at really anything other than they're going to just keep taking risks. They're going to keep investing and they're going to keep pounding on those that offer investments as they find the person who gives them what they want. And so they have two mouths, speak a lot, and they very rarely listen. Really not my kind of person. Um, they they talk to inquire, but not to, not to retain. In other words, here's a question. And by the time you answer the question, they've already turned off their listening and they're already moved on to the other subject. Um, they micro complain. They're never happy. If you meet their expectation or meet, meet the goal, the intended goal for the assets performance, or you meet the goal for what you said you're going to do for them, uh, you never get the kudos or pat on the back. But if there's something off by a half of a penny, uh, they're going to beat you on the head relentlessly and they're going to make it sound accusatory because they can't help themselves because nothing matters more in their world about having a higher net worth and winning. Um, I believe that most of them have very shallow relationships uh, and they see those relationships as nothing more than tools. And so when they win, they think they're geniuses. And when they lose, it's 100% your fault. So when I talk about these three types of millionaires, from my view, and I've kind of taken a broad category and compressed it into three different classes, the reason I point them out, the reason I do it at the end of this, this section, this uh, Money and Life uh, podcast, I do it at the end because if you are a millionaire today, you can actually decide which one of the three you want to be. If you're that flash and dash, just know you probably have a whole lot of Troys out there who won't take you in as a client. We'll do all I can to not have you as a client. And if I get you as a client, it's going to be a very short-lived relationship. So you're actually excluding yourself from a lot of opportunities because people who really are core and down to earth, who want to be in a relationship-driven you know, uh, asset sponsor versus a investor are probably not going to want to have you. They're not going to encourage you. So therefore, you're going to miss out on a lot of really good opportunities. Um, the same thing about being an A investor is that, you know, if you only keep score, and you're kind of lethargic and it's not really going to upset you, you're patient, you're willing to wait to down to the dips. You spend a whole lot of time with your uh, dollars uh, being placed at the betting table and you're only trying to get back to even. So there was a statistic out showing about how many millionaires from 2008's crash, housing bubble crash, spent the next decade just trying to get back to even. And so in today's inflationary market, you might ask yourself, do I want to sink into a hole just to climb back up the, the edge? No. I want to figure out how not to fall in the hole. And if I've already fallen in the hole the last five months and I'm down in stocks and I'm down in crypto and I'm down in other assets, maybe I don't want to fall any further by cutting my losses or, or shearing back or reallocating my assets. I might actually have a chance to not get in such a deep hole. So when it does rebound, I actually have a higher net worth, higher income, more liquidity when this thing rebounds and gets back on the speed here in the next three or four years. Look, this is Troy Eckerd. It's money and life. Talk with the Texan. Uh, every single time I, I speak, I'm not trying to uh, give you a message that is life shattering. I'm not trying to share with you something that maybe you just don't know yourself. But this particular uh, sec segment is really about two things. We're in a very, very tough tornado right now. We don't know if it's an F1 or an F5. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know which direction it's going to go. What I can tell you is all any of us can do is reflect on our past. Unfortunately, probably half the millionaires in this country never have gone through inflation or any kind of a downturn. They've not seen a down market since 2013. And if they were investing that time, they probably had very little money. So I'm saying sub 45-year-old clients, investors out there, have never been through anything like they're going through today. 
it will be very interesting to see how they react. So those older investors who have experienced the 2008 downturn, who went through that chaos and collapse, are probably a lot more PTSD like me, where they're very, very in tune with protecting and defensive position. But I will tell you, there is a lot to be said for looking for an offensive position as well. So when you think about the economy, you think about whether you need to cut back, you know, that top down, and you need to try to figure out how to grow your business by bottom up. And then you start thinking about what kind of a millionaire you are, what kind of millionaire you think you'll be if you're not a millionaire today. You're going to have to decide what comes with or against that particular type of a millionaire. And you can't change your personality unless you make a complete effort to do so. I mean, I, I do it all the time. I'm doing self-critique. But you got to decide who you are because it is going to have a whole lot to do with how you invest, how you manage your business, how you manage your assets, how you grow your life and your wealth, and what kind of money and life you're going to have in your combination. Some people, it's all about the money. Some people, it's all about the life. Some, it's either, you know, I always say M&M, moments and memories. Some people could care less about the moments and memories. They just want to know how much money is in the bank, how much cash do I have, how many cars do I own, how many houses do I own, and that's all they're driven by. Fine, that's their life. Some people are super rich and they literally refuse to buy a new car and drive an eight, 10-year-old car that's, that's rattling like a train. Um, there's two extremes. When you think about what I'm, the message I'm passing on, I'll say it in this simple summary. You have any direction you want to go in this country and you can be as rich or poor as you want. Every single day is one less asset you have in your bucket. We don't get that day back. It's time. It's memories. It's moments. It is about managing your expectations and managing your wealth. It's about taking action. Do not procrastinate. If you know you have a couple of holes in the side of your ship, assets, relationships, businesses, employees that really are just a deterioration in your life's quality or your business's balance sheet, take action today, tomorrow, do it. Have the courage to trim the fat and get yourself lean because I believe it's an F4 and F5 coming out. And I believe it's real. I don't believe we have any solution until we have a new president and a new administration. This is Troy Eckerd, Money and Life, Talk with the Texan. Thank you so much for joining me. You can always call me at my office, 800-527-8895, or you can always email me at my email address, which is teckerd at eckerdenterprises.com. I'm Troy Eckerd signing off. Thank you, everyone. Thanks to all our incredible friends for joining Troy for today's show, Talk with the Texan, Money and Life. Please join your host, Troy Eckert, for another edition of the program every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Troy, engage him, challenge him, but most importantly, listen to him. Three decades of expertise at your disposal. We'll see you here next week.